0: Uh, before, we, before we jump into our passage this morning, uh, a couple things to pray about. Uh, the first, um, uh, before we get to those even, uh, June 5th. I just want to highlight June 5th. God has been super faithful uh, to us, the Welcoming Church, uh, for 10 years. Uh, preemptively, let's clap for our faithful God. I mean, <laughs> it's just been awesome uh, to see... How he's transformed lives, brought salvation, mended marriages, uh, kept people from suicide, uh, cared for refugees and orphans and foster care. And I mean, it's just, it's just been amazing. just been amazing. So we want to celebrate him on June 5th. So please mark your calendar, June 5th, 10 a.m. Uh, we'll have a big old celebration at the Civic Center, and then afterwards we'll have a meal. Uh, everyone can eat and share stories. It's going to be a blast. So please mark that time. Uh, I think that's two Sundays away. Wow, uh, it's almost June. Two things to pray about. Uh, One, uh, I've been telling you about uh, a building possibility that is kind of still hot, uh, and we are talking with these folks, and we're just waiting for some other responses. So we need to pray. We just really need to pray uh, that if uh, this space is the one that the Lord has for us, that he would give it to us. And if it's not, that uh, he would open up the right space for us in the right time. We trust him. He's a good God. The second is our team is still in Kenya. We saw a picture of them last week of seven of us in Kenya uh, working with Gideon Banda and his team over with East-West Ministry doing amazing ministry uh, among Uh, really the most poor of the world and also some of the most unreached. So uh, Gideon and um, uh, his team of nationals leading the work there is just doing an amazing work. We're going to go just, we've just been supporting them, caring for them, encouraging them uh, and with them in the work for a couple weeks. So uh, let's pray for both those things out loud all at once. uh, The Lord will sort out our prayers, Uh, pray for the building, pray for the Kenya trip, and then I'll close this here in a second. Let's pray out loud all at once now. Father, thank you for Gideon and his team in Kenya right now uh, that's being uh, supported encouraged, cared for by our team. I just pray, God, that you would continue just to sustain them for a generational work uh, of planting churches, of caring for uh, the poor, for bringing the gospel. God, it's just a joy to see the work they're doing and, and to be a little piece of it as well with them. God, I pray for our team. I pray you'd really meet them uh, in the rest of this week to come Uh, that you would do whatever you desire to do in their lives, minds, and hearts, and that you would also work through them uh, for the people of Kenya and for Gideon and his team there. God, I also pray for this building opportunity. Father, we trust you. We trust you. Uh, You've always been so faithful, so generous to your church uh, here uh, at the well, and uh, we just trust you that you would have the right space for us in the right time uh, for your purposes, that we would get to see just generations impacted with the gospel and churches planted and people cared for and the the blessing you've poured on us poured out uh, to the folks in this area and the surrounding areas it is so good God to know that you're sovereign you're merciful you're mighty and you have wonderful plans for your church Uh, you have wonderful plans for us as your church uh, with or without this building or any building and we love you and we're so grateful to serve you it's in Christ we pray amen all right, let's get into this text. It's another hairy one. Uh, we have been in 2 Peter chapter 2, then uh, hitting 3. Chapter 2 was all about false teaching, how uh, kind of this teaching would rise up uh, from internal to the church. And we talked about last week uh, how often as a critique of our history as a church and, and a rightful critique, or in an effort to love folks outside of the church, that that false cr- uh, teaching might creep into our church and then kind of uh, uh, dissolve or degrade the good teaching of the gospel. And And now Peter's going to turn his eyes outward and he's going to talk about disposition uh, you know and when thinking of the world and those outside of the church uh, I want to highlight again uh, this book Secular Creed uh, by Rebecca McLaughlin she's a fantastic author, uh, both an apologist and theologian but also uh, her tone and relational angle in which she uh, writes with is fantastic so uh, you 'll see the cover of this book is uh, one of those yard signs and 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 I love she begins in the intro that when you see one of these yard signs, uh, you know, all of us grab a hammer some of us to put them in our yards and some of us to destroy them and she kind of uh, approaches with that kind of um, angle and, and gets to what needs to be received and gone even deeper uh, in the gospel and some of these teachings what needs to be rejected and said hey that 's not helpful okay so a uh, wonderful book we Ran out of them. You guys uh, bought them all out last week, so we bought a whole other stack. You can snag them uh, after first and second service. But she hits on this idea of disposition in it. And disposition, uh, how you orient yourself to another person, um, is critical for relationship, isn't it? There's lots of different critical aspects of relationship, honesty, communication, uh, but Courtney and I even talked yesterday about how our disposition, our default towards one another is critical in relationship. You know, you can be for one another, right? You could say, man, I am for you. We are aimed towards one another. Or you could say and your disposition, your default is, I am against you or you are against me. And then we become enemies or we orphan one another and run away from each other. Or we could be indifferent, right, to one another. Disposition is critical for relationship. Uh, For influencing, for caring, for uh, living in relationship with one another. And what I want to talk about this morning is our disposition towards the world. First we'll look at the world's disposition towards us in verses 1 to 7 of this passage. Then we'll look at God's disposition towards the world... And then we'll end with how God's disposition towards the world influences or impacts our own disposition towards the world. And when I say the world, I I mean uh, really anyone who's outside of Christ, who's not yet chosen to orient or give their allegiance to Jesus, uh, seeing who he is and how loving he is and what he's done to rescue them. They've not yet put themselves under his kingship, his made him, in a sense, uh, their savior, right? So that's how I'm using the word world as we go through this passage this morning. So first, uh, the world's disposition towards God and us. It's found in verses uh, 1 to 7 of chapter 3. And Peter begins by saying, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. We already did the first letter. And he says, beloved... He'll use that kind of phrase throughout this passage and previous passages to say, we're the family of God, loving each other. This is kind of an affectionate term of saying, uh, I love you and we love one another. Man, we're this wonderful family together with all of our foibles, all of our warts, all of our brokenness. We are the beloved together in Christ. In both of these letters, he says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. I want you to remember, he says, he's used this word all through this letter and the previous letter. I want you to remember who your Savior is. It'll transform your whole life. I want you to remember these things that the apostles said would happen uh, so you won't be surprised when they do. He uses this kind of remembrance through both letters. And here's what he says I want you to remember, verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, That scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. The the world's disposition towards God and the world's disposition towards uh, the beloved family of God is this, scoffing. Maybe we feel it more and more in these days. You fools to believe such a thing. And here the reason is explicit. Uh, uh, The people in uh, Asia Minor, this is kind of modern day Turkey that Peter is writing to. uh, They're saying, Jesus is coming back. and, And those surrounding the world who have not aligned themselves to Christ have said, you fools, you idiots. This whole paradigm in which you're building your life is worthless. It's untrue. Uh, all, ever since the father, since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the prophets, and then there was this 400 years of silence, they say, it's all been the same. Nothing's happened. God's not coming back. Jesus isn't returning. Why would you build your life on such a lie? Why would you orient your cash according to a truth that says, this Jesus is my Savior who reigns and will return? Why would you orient your relationships according to this Savior who says, I came and died and arisen and will return? Why would you orient your whole self to him, you fool? The world's disposition towards God and towards us is scoffing. Uh, If I had the Greek translation, I'd say making fun of, (laughs) degrading. Uh, Peter will say they're deliberately overlooking kind of the newness of uh, their message in opposition to the oldness of God's promises. This God who uh, made the world uh, by water and then uh, deluged them in the time of Noah and then kind of sustaining them now in his uh, recreation as we wait for his final judgment and return and and absolute restoration. He says, man, God is eternal way back here who has taught us what is true and we here in this little blip of time, 2022 saying, you fool, you fools. How dare we think ourselves so wise. Uh, Jesus, when he walked the earth, said this to us, his followers, and those who were walking with him. In John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 18, he says this. If the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, world, uh, the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, they will, also persec- uh, they will also persecute you. If they persecuted me, sorry, Jesus says, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. It's a comfort in a sense because Jesus says uh, and Peter says we're to expect this. If you're going with a false expectation into a relationship or into a job and you think it's going to go this way and it goes that way, then you're shocked. Oh my gosh, I thought it would be like this. And, and Jesus says, and Peter says, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, that you will also participate in his glory at his return. And Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. It's a comfort because we expect it. We go in saying, this is the way it will go if I choose to follow Jesus. And it's a comfort also because Jesus says, I'm with you in it. And Peter says, we're built on Christ together, linked arms with one another. It's a comfort because it's expected and it's shared. But it might also be convicting for you. It's often convicting for me. If I'm living for Christ explicitly and he says, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And and if they scoffed at me, they'll scoff at you. I often wonder, where's all that scoffing? How much am I living in alignment to the world in a way that no one's scoffing at me? It's It's a comfort, but it's also a conviction. The world's disposition towards God himself and towards us, the church, is scoffing. And the thing they're scoffing and and making fun of Christians about is this delay of God's return. They're saying, this Jesus is never coming back. And and God's delay is going to kind of highlight or reveal his disposition towards the world. God's delay that they are scoffing at God for uh, will uh, reveal his disposition towards the world. How God feels about this world that scoffs at him says in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And so Peter is acknowledging, he's saying, yeah, you're right. It's slow and Jesus has not yet returned. He's saying there's a delay in a sense even the, he and the first followers probably didn't expect. There's this uh, one day for the Lord that's like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Remember, this is the eternal God working out his eternal plan over time who stands outside of time. And we often scratch our heads and say, what's he doing in the delay? So the scoffers are right in one sense. There is a giant delay here. From our perspective, but God is always redeeming and using his delay with purpose, isn't he? He's always doing something a bit deeper a bit greater with his delays. It's the way he's always functioned. See, his delay is going to reveal his disposition towards us. And let's look at a couple delays in the Gospels. Uh, One of my favorite delays uh, where, where God does not come in time is John chapter 11 with Lazarus. Remember Lazarus and Martha and Mary? Martha and Mary are good friends, and Lazarus is a good friend, and he's, he's dying and then dies in Bethany. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus uh, of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. And, and Martha, who uh, anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Martha and Mary say, our brother Lazarus is dying. He's ill. And, and now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Do you see it? Uh, um, Jesus gets word that my good friend Lazarus is dying. And now because he loves Lazarus and Martha and Mary and because God will be glorified in this delay, he stays two days longer. And they scratch their heads and they might have even mocked saying, where is Jesus when we most need him? You fools to trust in a person like him. Even the disciples, when they're walking towards Bethany, they're like, this is not going to be good. Jesus, remember, they kind of hate you there as they're walking through. And and Jesus says in verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I've gone to awaken him. And the disciples are like, well, it's just asleep. Let's let him sleep. He'll wake up. and, And then Jesus told them plainly in verse 14, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. The delay is for greater purposes. Uh, He's going to say to the disciples, he's going to say to Martha and Mary and Lazarus, when he raises him from the dead, he's going to say, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and he who lives and believes in me will never die. He says, I'm doing something greater here which will impact all of eternity. I want to get deep into your minds and hearts and impact your faith that you would trust in me, Jesus, as your Savior. I'll delay for that purpose, Another fantastic delay is in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the the crowd welcomed him, for they were waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of a synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had his only daughter. Do you hear the love there? about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people passed him, and there's a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And and we know the story, right? She reaches out, she touches his cloak, and he stops and he delays. He's hanging out with her and and heals her and kind of spends some time teaching the crowd and, and then walks up, verse 48, this friend, and says to the teacher, Jesus, talking when the woman saw that she was not hidden, came trembling, and meaning, daughter, your faith has healed you. While he's still speaking, verse 49, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing his, his answered him, Do not fear, only believe, she will be well. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter, and they go in, and they raise her to life. Do not weep. She's only asleep, and they laugh at him, and they mock him, and then she says, A child, arise, and she comes to life. In the middle of their mocking, she comes to life. In the midst of his delays, he's doing something deeper and greater. She comes to life takes a ruler of a synagogue who's absolutely against this new teacher, Jesus, takes this mocking crowd who's absolutely against this new teacher, Jesus, and in the delay, she raises, he raises her to life and they're in awe and amazed. In the delay, we realize deeper and greater things about our God and our Savior. Even the scoffers even ourselves as we scoff. Hey, you see, have you ever done this? You're, you're going somewhere in your car or you're, you're walking there and you start to zoom in on your Google Maps and you get too far in, Right? And every turn turns either green or gray. I don't know why it's always green or gray. I'm, I, I'm too deep in it. And I, all I see is right here, right today. And the Lord says, I'm doing something greater outside of time. I'm doing something in this delay that you might not realize now. I'll be glorified. You'll see the depth of my love. I'm doing something to bring salvation. They mock him for his delay and listen to his disposition, it's desire, it's delight over them, even them. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The very thing they mock him for is the thing he is doing to save them. The very thing for which they are mocking him is the thing he is doing to save them. Do you see the disposition of our God, our loving, gracious, merciful God? He is slow and patient to save. To give a bigger window where those who are mocking and are saying, why would you trust in a Jesus like that? Why would you align your life to a Jesus like that? God says, I'll delay even longer. That more might be saved. In his delay we see his disposition. And that's desire and love for a world that mocks him. God's eternal plan to bring about salvation has often and always been covered by the mocking of a world that's rejecting him. And often a mocking in our own lives of our God and his salvation. I want to take us just to the end of Jesus' life. Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 32 and following. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them, casting lots. When they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourselves. If you're the Son of God, come down from that cross." So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him then. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And the thing they are mocking him for, he is using to save them. Patient towards us? Wasn't he patient towards you? Isn't he patient towards you still? Think about where your life would have headed if you were your own master. What were you doing to find life? What do you still do to find life? What what if the Lord hadn't been patient with you and just crushed you in his judgment or or hadn't been patient with you and just walked away and let you have your own way? Where would you be today? Would Would you be a slave to your work in a way that you're just grinding this way and that to find security and salvation and validation in everything you could do and it was bringing about a gutting of your soul, and the destroying of relationships? What if he let you run in your licentiousness and said, fine, chase that sin that you want to have and that delight that you think will bring joy and satisfaction. He just said, go for it. What if he did that today with us? See, the disposition of our God radically transforms the disposition we have towards his world. It's the same disposition that of delight, desire. Oh, come. Come meet my Savior. He's so patient. He's so merciful. He's so kind. Our own disposition. Peter gets there next. It's allegiance to our Savior and a love for his world. But when Peter talks about in this last passage it gets kind of really dark and dismal and also really helpful at the same time verse 10 and following but the day of the Lord will come like a thief when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed there will be this massive judgment, this, this exposure of my sinfulness, your sinfulness, his sinfulness, her sinfulness, everyone's sinfulness. Since all these things are to be thus dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of our God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Pooh! Oh! But, contrast, according to his promise, we are waiting for this day, waiting for a new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Think about a forest fire. A fire that rages through thousands of acres of forest. And and we say, oh God, your judgment. But then at the same time, afterwards, we see a thinning of trees and a a budding of new branches and leaves. And we say, "Ah, it's for restoration, newness of life. A day when righteousness will reign forever. That's what our God is doing in judgment. He's bringing about restoration and redemption of a broken, unjust, sinful world where we all groan. He says, because of the eternal plans, a promise that is sure, we ought to be people who live holy, godly lives. You say, you are my God and Savior. I'll align everything I do under you. And doesn't it compel us with the same kind of disposition towards the world? Doesn't this compel us with the same kind of disposition towards the world? I'm going to just kind of let you into a couple things here in my mind and heart that have been going on. Uh, story after story over the past year. Because really, I'm going to tell you, it's really hard when we say we're going to live for Jesus, and then you are mocked. or when you say, man, I, I... I, by God's grace, know that that's going to lead to destruction in your life, and you watch it occur in someone's life, or a neighbor's life, or a friend's life, and, and you're like, man, if you only knew how loving our God was and the ways that He set, how they lead to life and flourishing. I just wish you knew, right? Like, so when your heart groans for your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, or uh, or or when you're mocked, right? Both, right? And they both hit all at once, all at the same time. I mean, social media, and then and then you got friends you're talking to, and they they're mocking you, and they're also making decisions where you're like, oh man, that's bringing death in your life. I wish you knew this Savior. It makes it hard, hard to have this disposition that keeps saying, "I man, I desire you like my Savior has desired me, a mocker, a fool like me. I I want you to know him. It's really hard, isn't it? Beginning of the year, we heard about a six-year-old in our neighborhood and the parents walking him through a transition to her. And you're like, dang, that's not, that's, that's going to be really hard. That's going to be really hard to undo. And there's going to be deep pain. We've seen this. That's deep pain. Uh, Then I'm talking to a family at church, and they say, oh, man, my, my son's at school really struggling with anxiety, a little bit of depression, and just a little 10-year-old little guy, and. So he goes to see the counselor, oh, fantastic, you ought to, and the counselor suggests, says, uh, maybe it's because you're wrestling with your own sexual identity that this is occurring in your life, and and you ought to just uh, think about changing. Uh, Talk to another uh, friend, a high schooler, a teacher, and uh, This one high school uh, biological gender male uh, is transitioning to a gender identification uh, female and parents don't know and that's kind of been going on for about half a year or so and the parents are coming into school and so the office all says together uh, make sure we use uh, uh, the biological uh, pronouns because we got to hide this from the parents. Uh, watching, watching Leah Thomas and others kind of hurt women. Oh, man, uh, then my uh, one of my daughters—I keeping it anonymous. One of—I got a lot of daughters. <laughs> one of my daughters comes home. Says, hey, the librarian called our whole class in and and, and walked through all these books, LGBTQ books, and and, and then said, hey, if your parents won't let you read these, they're homophobic. That's what what the librarian said to her. You don't know me. (laughs) And you don't know the depth of my love for my homosexual friends. You don't know that. It makes it hard for a disposition of the church to say, man, desire, embrace, love. Share good news. What I want to do is I want to fight, I want to mock, I want to legislate, I want to use power to take over, right? That's not the way of Jesus. That's not what Jesus has done towards us mockers, us fools, us sinners, This passage says there is a reality to eternity. This passage says there is a length to eternity. This passage says there's a love of a Savior who's poured out his love on us mockers, us foolish that we would live in such a way that would just be radically different, right? No matter who's mocking or making fun of, because we say, that's my Savior whom I love and trust. I'm going to live for Him. He is returning, and He's going to make all things right. What a glorious day it will be. And at the same time saying, man, I want you to know Him. I'm not going to power play or mock you or get angry at you. I just want you to know Him. He'll change your life. This is the story of the gospel. This is just the straight story of the gospel. We we do it every week. God said, I, I created you to have a disposition towards me and me towards you. We would be friends, family, the beloved together. But what did we do? We said, No way. I'm gonna live for my workplace. I'm gonna live for my kids. I'm gonna live for my legalism. I'm gonna live for my license. I'm gonna live for me. And we ran. We ran wagging our heads at him as he hung on a cross for us, saying, I want to live for me. But he chased us down. By grace and his delay and his patience, he, he got hold of each of us. By grace. And turned us by his mercy and his grace when he opened our eyes and we clung to his Savior. We said, oh man, I love you too. I've seen your love poured out for me on Christ. And then we saw his power and his resurrection that he transformed us and bring us into a living relationship with a living God. That we could live for him in holy and godliness and say, you have all of me. And then we could go to our neighbors, our friends and say, I know a God. I know a God who loves you so deeply. Would you give your whole life to him? He died for, in the very midst of the things you're scoffing over him for, he was dying for you. Making you a son or daughter, would you embrace him by faith? If you haven't trusted him this morning, I just say, why the delay in your own life? Why the delay in your own life? You're just wasting years of joy following and knowing and loving your Savior. Don't waste these years anymore. If you are following him this morning, if he is your Savior, would you you be reminded of just how loving, gracious, merciful he is? That with our lives still we scoff at his ways, still we run from him in unfaithfulness. And still his disposition towards us, his desire, he chases us down. His son's body was broken, his blood was spilled. To make us sons and daughters, the beloved together. And then to compel us towards a world with his same disposition of desire. That they might know and love and align their lives under a gracious, merciful, loving God. And find life and life to the full. Let's take and eat together.